Welcome to the show, everybody. Our guest, Lainey Liberty, is a best-selling author, an international speaker, a community leader, a teen mentor, and alternative education advocate who has helped to spearhead the thriving world schooling movement. And I am not exaggerating. Um, this is, this might be, this is literally in the top two. This might be my favorite podcast I've ever done. This, this was fascinating. Um, Lainey has an incredible story. Um, one of those stories that like she belongs on Lewis Howes or, you know, Joe Rogan or some of these legendary podcasts because she has been living nomadically all over the world with her son. Uh, literally like she calls it world schooling her son for 14 years. She's literally been on every continent. She is just like literally like she's just she just travels the world all the time and every you know few years she calls a new place home and she she's such a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and experience in psychology in philosophy in culture in archaeology like you know <laughs> she like you know her and her son Myro are just examples of just human beings that never stop learning and their tenacity and their just sheer willingness to you know essentially as she says say yes to everything that is within their core values like they literally have a rule that they say yes to anything as long as it fits within their core core values so when her son asked her uh back when i think he was like 11 years old if they could travel the world for their, the rest of their life, she looked at her values, their values that they created together, and it was in alignment with that. And so she said yes. And literally ever since, you know, they've done TED Talks together. Like they, they've, they've done some incredible things in the world. And her book is phenomenal too. And just, yeah, just hearing her stories of how they have just continually traveled the world into all of these cities and towns and all of the researchers and scientists that they have met and how they, you know, just, they wanted to. So they went to find the history channel and, um, the, the crew for like ancient aliens or something. And they just volunteered, offered to be their assistants and they were brought on and they were showed like just all of these things that I don't think ever made it onto the show, but just like they, it was their job to uh, do all the photography um, on one of the seasons of the show or something. And so, you know, she was able to go into the Peruvian museum and like literally take the exhibit out and like, you know, uh, get photography for it and photograph it in different like elongated skulls from Peru that are like real, like literally real. And it's just, Oh my God, it's just, it's fascinating. Some of the things we talked about in this conversation and again, just psychology and you know, how they made everything work again, like living nomadically with your son, who's like nine years old uh, for 14 years is pretty, it's pretty radical in all of the things that go into that. So yeah, if you enjoy my podcast, I know you're going to enjoy this one. 
Before we begin, I want to take a moment to thank our first sponsor of the show, Listening to Smile, and its founder and personal friend of mine, Ian Morris. Listening to Smile is one of the companies leading the movement to bring frequency-minded music to the mainstream. And for anyone who doesn't know, frequency-minded music is music that is infused with binaural beats and frequencies that enhance and speed up our body's natural healing mechanisms. And Ian's music is actively healing the world and is currently inspiring open-minded leaders in Silicon Valley to include his music in their products and to help them create a workplace culture that is focused on mental health and well-being. And I personally use Listening to Smile's products every single day to support me with stress relief and is my music of choice for my daily meditation practice. And Listening to Smile has two main programs. The first is their personal wellness program, and this is for personal use, and this consists of healing albums for stress relief, pain relief, and anxiety relief. And the second program is their affiliate program. This is what I'm currently part of, and this is for commercial use, and this is the exciting one. So what you get with this is two free starter albums and one brand new album every single month. You also get access to monthly live coaching events with founder Ian Morris and commission earnings on album sales, a 50% discount on all music purchases, and licensing rights to use and resell LTS music for commercial use. So... If you're interested in transforming your life and entering the expanding frontier of frequency-minded music, be sure to go to www.listeningtosmile.com and experience it for yourself. And at checkout, make sure to use code ANTON to get 40% off all albums and $100 off of their affiliate program. So enjoy, everyone. I also want to take a moment to thank our second sponsor of the show, Vidara, and their My Indigo Sun magazine. The mission of My Indigo Sun is to help you live a healthy and inspired life and is dedicated to bringing you the latest and greatest information related to the realms of the body, mind, and spirit. And I actually met the founder, Katerina, um, at an event earlier this year. And within five minutes, it was very clear that we were aligned and that we were going to be doing a partnership. And like myself and many of you, the people of Vidara are dreamers who see that the beautiful world we see ahead of us starts with us. So in addition to being their in-house podcaster, I'm also part of the working group helping my Indigo son to transition into a world-class publication. So if you are interested in transforming your life and taking part in an evolving spiritual community, be sure to go to www.myindigosun.com and check out the magazine for free. And now on to our podcast with Lainey Liberty. So Lainey, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I'm really, really thrilled to have this conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. And to jump right into it, my first question is if you could share literally just, yeah, your story about your life and how you became who you are today. And specifically, if you can jump into part of this, into how you got into world schooling and taking your son out of the public education system. Yeah, I'm going to give you like little bits and pieces, but really the um, 2008 economy crash in California was probably the best place to start. Um, I, at the time, am, was a single parent 
And at the time, my son was nine years old. Um, and I ran, owned and ran a boutique uh, branding advertising agency and had worked in advertising for about 18 years. And at the time, it was kind of crazy. I felt overworked and overstressed and pulled in all of these directions and really felt like you know, it, I just was so ready for a change. And when the economy crashed in 2008, um, you know, I was faced with knowing that I wasn't bringing my staff back at the, end, mm. at the beginning of the following year. I knew that, you know, it, I saw my, my clients dropping away left and right. I primarily dealt with uh, green eco companies and nonprofits at the time. And I was a very specialized boutique agency and I was in demand. However, the nonprofits, their funding went away. And well, that meant that my clients were going away. And one night I was sitting in the office. It was late one night with my son and I just had this wave come over me, this wave of intuition, this wave of knowing. And I turned around and said to my son, who was, you know, it was after school, it must have been like sometime between 9 and 10 p.m. And he was, like I said, nine years old and still at the office with me and we're we're shutting down. And I looked at him and his name is Miro. And I said, Miro, what, what would you think if we just got rid of all this stuff and just took an adventure, me and you. And I remember his face, he stopped playing the game that he was playing and he turned around and he looked at me and he said, seriously? And I said, yeah. He said, I'm in. And I said, let's do it. And the part that I didn't really expand on was being a single parent, overstressed, overworked, and working really hard, sometimes 12 to 16 hours a day. My, wow. it, it was crazy. When you own an agency, when you own something like that, you're doing everything. You're playing all these hats and, you know, wearing all these hats and playing all these roles. Yeah. And my son said to me all the time, Mom, you're always working. You're never spending any time with me. And the cognitive dissidence of what he was saying was real. I knew it was true, but it didn't make sense because I was living, air quotes, the American dream, and I was doing mm. it for him. And I, I just didn't have these things in balance. And when this wave of inspiration hit me, I knew like I'd take my next breath, that kind of knowing that this was the right thing to do. And I knew he'd say yes. And within less than six months, we had closed the business. I had, you know, um, you know, given some of my clients away, worked with some of my clients to do some freelance, but initial, but you know, basically everything was shut, closed. Um, we sold or gave away everything and we took off with two really heavy backpacks. And the idea was we were going to leave the United States for one year. And can you imagine like leaving for a year? In your mind, it feels like a big time. It feels yeah. like it's like, wow, a year of your life. That's like a really yeah. long time. 
Well, that was almost 14 years ago. (laughs) And we still haven't gone back. And we had the plan to travel for one year with our backpacks through Latin America. We were going to go from, from, like I said, LA. So head south, Mexico, all the way south through Central America, through South America, and eventually end up at the tip of South America in Ushuaia, Argentina. So that was 14 years ago, and I have a confession. We have never made it to Ushuaia yet. Really? Still time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just been a crazy life transforming adventure. And I'd say that was the biggest catalyst. But of course, there's all sorts of things that happened before and after, but that gives you a nice foundation to to kind of understand um, how transformation started within our lives. Wow. (laughs) Where do you go from there? (laughs) Well, well, like I'm just taking it all in. Like, cause you know, I, I, I took a year abroad as well. Um, I, back in 2018, I had dropped out of university. Um, I was mm-hmm. going to be a, a teacher and a counselor <clears throat> and I just realized like literally, I, you know, what was really interesting. It was, it was like you, it was one day randomly in the fucking shower. It just <laughs> hit me like a bolt of lightning. You're dropping out of university. Like, like I didn't tell my dad, <laughs> like I did like, I just, it was so, it was so weird. It was like, like you said, it was just like this felt, felt sense of knowing. Um, And you know what? I don't remember if I told my mom before or after I dropped out. I don't remember. Um, I think, I think what I, I think what I did is I think I told my mom, like I'm dropping out of university and, and my mom and I have always been like best friends. So like, she was like, she's like, cool. Okay. <laughs> my dad was a bit different. My dad was fucking pissed. <laughs> like, he was furious. Mom, mom was like, yeah, cool. Like, like my mom's always believed in me. Like she just, she's like, yeah, it's all going to be fine. And so I remember I went to university for the first week, just like, I remember like almost, almost as a romantic goodbye. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like, you know, you're going to break up with your girlfriend or something. And you just, you're like, you know, let's go on one last date and let's make it beautiful. And then I'll, I'll we'll say goodbye in, in a, in a good place. You know what I mean? Where we can remember the good times. And it was kind of like that with the university. Like I just, I went, um, for like, I think like two days and I just, it was like, I was almost just saying goodbye to everything. And I don't think I, and I remember going around to all my guidance counselors. Cause I, I had really good relationships with a lot of the professors and guidance counselors and, I was really excited and I remember telling all of them and they're like, wow, like, that's awesome. Like, good for you. And, you know, what are you going to do? And I had a whole dream at that point. Like, I'm going to go to New Zealand. I'm going to switch my degree um, and I'm going to study under Bruce Lipton, Dr. Bruce Lipton. I, I was I was literally like, I don't know. I had this wild dream. Like, I've always, I've always been a dreamer. And, but it was like, looking back, I'm like, how did you think that was going to happen? Like, I was just going to walk into his office and be like, Bruce, you're going to mentor me. <laughs> like, that was literally this idea I had in my head. Like, I was going to walk in and I was going to blow him away with my maturity at like fucking 
eight, like 21 years old or something. And he was gonna be like, wow, I need to mentor this kid. I never met Dr. Bruce Lipton yet. So I never did it, but I was like, um, yeah, it was just like this dream. And so I, I drop out of university and then I just literally, I'm like unemployed and living with my mom for like a year, a year, I think. I think I was living for a year and I was just like finding like who I was in a big way. I was, um, you go to university right after high school. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. I mean, I have this whole conversation about education and the education system, but please continue your story. Yeah. I no, I, you, 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 you're right. And we're going to jump in it. Cause I'd love your feedback <laughs> on that after, but like I, I took a year and I just like, I wanted to figure out who I was for the exact same reason you just mentioned that I felt like the momentum of life was like, I didn't really choose what I wanted to do. Like I remember the conversation when I wanted to be a high school teacher, it was, I was 16 years old. My, my cousin was there and I was at dinner with my mom and I think my dad and my cousin. And they asked me, like, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, I was 16. And I remember my cousin saying, or my mom and my cousin, I think they kind of like agreed. They're like, you know, you'd be a good teacher. And I was like, okay, I'll be a teacher. And then my cousin was like, oh, you know, I really liked my, uh, my geography teacher. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be a geography. Like he was just like, it was, it, I was just I, like, I look back, I'm like looking at who I am now and how I make decisions and how in some sense, I don't know all of who I am, but like, I have a strong sense of like my process. I'm like, how did I just do that? And, and at the same time, it was perfect. Like I, I can feel the, the divine inspiration that essentially like, it was almost like in some sense, I feel like it was like God speaking through them to me. And it was like me, like I accepted it want willingly. It wasn't like, you know, I, I sometimes flippantly tell the story like I had no agency and no choice, but it felt right. Like at the time, like it was like, OK, this is this is my path. I'm going to be a teacher. And like I loved kids like, you know, I was a swimming instructor for children. My favorite job ever was a camp counselor. Like that was my favorite job in the universe. Literally two months overnight. I was staying there for two months, just mentorship, leadership and just taking care of kids and just, you know, making sure they're happy. And we'd end up knowing me, like we'd end up, I'd be having these deep philosophical conversations with like 13 year olds, like about the meaning of life and stuff. And, and it was just like, I just, I loved it. And so, so yeah, so I'm, I'm back to kind of where I was. So I'm, I'm taking a year off. I'm living with my mom and I'm just like figuring out like, you know, who am I? So I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I was listening to a lot of like Joe Rogan and these different, just like a lot of psychologists. He'd have psychologists on and spiritual people. And I was just like every day, I'd probably be listening to podcasts for probably like five hours. It was wild. It was just continuous. And, and then I, I got like suicidally depressed at this point because I had this big dream of like, I knew I kind of wanted to do something to do with public speaking and mentorship. Um, and I, I like, I just didn't know exactly what, and I, and I started losing, losing faith in my ability to, to get to where I wanted to go. 
It was like I kind of lost faith and it was black and I was going through a lot of issues with my brother. I was going through a lot of self-confidence challenges. I was going through issues with my mom, my dad, like everybody in my family. Like I just, I felt like I was a piece of shit and I was being told essentially I was kind of like a piece of shit. Not by my mom, but everybody else was just like, you know, you like get your shit together kind of thing, right? And it was tough and I had this like felt sense inside me like, no, I need to take this time to figure out who I am. I need to, like, I was also, I was reading, like, I know you mentioned in your book, uh, Tim Ferriss, four-hour four work week. So I, I read the four-hour work week and I was reading all of these, like, self-development, self-help uh, books. And I was like, you know, I was practicing, you know, just going on, like, I was like planning, like, my days. Like, I was really kind of like, okay, like, at this time, you know, at 5.30, I'll play a little video games. And then at 6.30, I'll watch a little TV, then I'll read, and then I'll go to bed. And, like, I would literally, even though I was unemployed doing nothing, I was still scheduling all of my days. I'd be like, I'm going to listen to this podcast with this psychologist at, like, 12 p.m. And, like, it was like, if anyone looked at it, it was like, it was just this guy's on holiday, but he's, like, choosing how he's going to live his holiday. But for me, it was really important. And it's still really important now because everything I learned about how to design a day and, and what it feels like to be relaxed and stressed and ebbing and flowing between different stages, I carry that with me today. And I think the only reason that right now I have a sense of like, I plan everything. Like I, if you looked at my day schedule, it's like I have meetings you know, all day up until this time, then I do my podcast and I do this and I do that. And like everything is scheduled and everything is scheduled from the perspective of like a yin yang balance and ebb and a flow of how I want my days to feel like, how I want my life to feel like, how I want my weeks to be. And everything is very intentional and everything I've built into my life today came from that year of I didn't work, meaning I didn't have anybody else telling me the value of my day, the value of my time, how I was supposed to live my life. And in that vacant vacuum of nothingness, I could choose how I wanted to live my life. And at the same time, you know, it's like in my perception, I see it almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs where it's like, you know, when all you're doing is surviving, the mental health challenges aren't really there. Like if you are just trying to survive the wilderness, you don't have the time to worry about existential issues. You are trying not to get eaten by bears and all of these things. And so with the pure chaos of a year of nothing, I had a lot of suicidal mental health challenges of like, who are you? What are you doing with your life? What do you want to be? And in that time, it was like, oh, okay, actually, you know, Again, I didn't have the momentum of a job to tell me what my self-worth was. So I was like, okay, what do I want to do? And then that's when I realized I wanted to be a public speaker, I want to be a professor, and I want to be a podcaster. I kind of modeled that in some sense after the professor Jordan Peterson, and at that time I was very into him. Um, and I was kind of like modeling, look, I'd like to do everything he does in my own way. And then this is all where I, I tie this into what you were talking about. And so it is Christmas of 2018, I think. I'm suicidally depressed. I'm at Christmas dinner. Um, and we have our whole family there. And my dad's friends are there. And everyone's in the other room. 
and I'm talking to my mom's friend, Irena, and she's a, she's a teacher. She's an elementary school teacher. And she asks me how I'm doing. And I just start crying. <laughs> like I literally just, I fall apart. And I told her, I'm like, I'm lost. I'm suicidal. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I feel like I'm a fuck up. I had this massive expectation of what I want to do in my life, but I have no fucking clue how to get there. Zero clue. I'm like, I, I just, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And she's like, she just kind of smiled. She looked at me and she's like, have you ever thought about being a counselor? I was like, no, like I remember my professor in my fourth year of university, literally I was in teaching and she, she asked me something. She's like, Anton, why are you in teaching? I was like, cause I, I love children. I really want to mentor people and, and be a leader. I want to help people get through the times of their life that I needed a mentor through. Like when I was in grade nine and that transition, I want to be a grade nine teacher to help all of those kids. And she's like, Anton, it sounds like you, you're more like a counselor than a teacher. I was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm going to be a teacher. Like, I've already made up my mind. And sure enough, so when Irena tells me this, kind of goes through my head. I'm like, oh, counselor. And I, I really thought about it for the first time. And that's when everything kind of came together. And I was like the Jordan Peterson thing. I'm like, oh, I'll be a professor, a counselor, a public speaker, and a podcaster. <laughs> like, I'll be these, like, four things. And she's like, man, and also, like, have you thought about like traveling the world or anything? And just everything hit. And, like at once I was like, I had this renewed sense of passion and inspiration. I was like, yeah, I'm going to travel to New Zealand. I'm going to find Dr. Bruce Lipton. I'm going to convince him to be my professor. He's going to teach me epigenetics and all of this stuff. And that's my ticket. That's how I'm going to live my life. And then sure enough, I you know, backpack, plan my, my year in New Zealand, ended up being three months. And then I traveled to British Columbia for another month. And it was kind of like on and off kind of traveling a little bit. But it was like really like six months, six months of kind of really in that travel mode. And it was, and I went to New Zealand and like, it was the most magical time of my life. Just going from hostel to, I, I went both, literally both islands. I traveled everywhere i drove all the way up and down both coasts up and down i went to like every city i went to every hostel and i just you know it really hit me that like none of these people care who i am they don't care where i come from they don't care how much money i make they don't care about anything it was just like i'd go to a hostel and i'd find people i resonated with and i'd find people to have spiritual conversations with psychological conversations and i'd find reiki healers and meditation teachers and people in psychology and it was just so beautiful to just be and I started learning how to play guitar. And I literally, I would, this is like, I would literally do this. So I would learn how to play a song and guitar that day. And I would teach people in the hostel how to play that song that night. Like you'd literally, I'd just be like learning something and I'd teach people. And it was just such a, such a beautiful thing. And so like this all kind of came to me when you were sharing, because I was just, you know, when you were talking about this adventure and going with Myro and, you know, just traveling South America and just how it never ends. Like, I just, I could feel what you were talking about, you know? It's just, it's, it's beautiful, you know? Yeah, and raising a child 
for this to be their life. What you've said about your discovery of self within the three months that you experienced in uh, New Zealand, the the presence, the stepping outside of your comfort zone, the trusting your intuition, the learning, and how how do you how do you really learn something? You learn it by teaching somebody else. So you 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 uncovered that key. All of it is possible. I thought, or I think through travel. And in fact, for me, travel was that one gift that taught me how to be present in my life and accountable Mm. and emotionally available and emotional intelligence as well. I just, all of those things were a big part of our transformation as, as a parent child, um, yeah, our relationship blossomed. We started learning everything, absolutely everything. Mm. Our interests and curiosity became the catalyst for a, a, a wide open world of adventure and learning. And just, it never stopped. And we were having so much fun doing it. And every country we, we went to, there was like this, this new birth of curiosity that guided us through everything. It was incredible, which is, I mean, we became so excited about that. Mm -hmm. Um, We helped to birth a movement of families that, you know, picked up on that excitement and wanted that kind of life for themselves that stepped out of that sort of hamster wheel mentality of, you know, in our case, the American dream, but I mean, Western world, everybody has that same sort of, yeah. you know, hard, re- play hard when you retire. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah. You can, then you can live your life when you retire. And so I'm curious with yeah. you, you and Myro. Um, so how, yeah. Cause, cause I had one question that kind of popped through my head when you were talking is I'm curious how Myro's stages of emotional development and social development would have played out with learning in the world. So if you could please go over how you designed this idea of world schooling and unschooling and how how that impacted Myro's social, in a big way, I feel like his social development. Yeah, I will. So I've got stories. (laughs) So like I said, we left when he was nine, just turning 10. And the first couple of years, it was, you know, very much about the adventure of things. But to back up, um, you know, I've always been an attachment parent. I read so many books about parenting and about um, healing and the psychology of healing and and self-directed healing and that sort of thing. Um, as somebody who grew up with a lot of trauma in my childhood and an insecure attachment style, I knew there were many things that I needed to heal before I became a parent. And I intentionally wanted to be a parent and it was very important to me. And so those words, you never spend any time with me, you're always working was the biggest heartbreak because there was nothing I wanted more in the world than to be a parent. Like that was so, so such a huge part of my desire for my life experience and and that of my child. 
And a couple of things that we decided before we left on our travels. The first thing was we were going to do everything in partnership. I didn't want to be the boss. I'm actually an anarchist and don't believe in in authority and obeying authority for the sake of authority. I I believe that there are... um, you know, uh, values that we can align ourselves with and choose, you know, voluntarily to do what what felt in alignment with our values and so forth. It doesn't mean that we're running around, you know, in chaos or <laughs> entropy. It meant that, you know, there was no other authority outside of ourselves. And that was one thing that was really important for me to, to talk to my son about and really ingrain in him as a human being. And so partnership means consensual conversations, consensual um, interactions. It means that we are both sovereign individuals. And it also means that um, consent in all of our relationships was absolutely a must. So partnership really encapsulates all, all of that. And so our partnership meant we were deciding where we were going together, you know, how long we were staying, what we were going to do, how we were spending our budget. He had, you know, uh. even at years old, he had all the codes to the ATM and the bank. <laughs> it was our money. And that's what partnership is, wow. right? talked about everything. It also meant that we were accountable for our own emotions. And if something came up, we would always every evening do a check-in. So we set lots of systems in place, and I call it scaffolding. I'm one of those people that like needs to understand the scaffolding around me in order to know where my security is and and you know how I fit into the world and also how to break the scaffolding yeah. when I intentionally choose to because that's my choice my sovereign birthright as an individual to be able to make my own personal choices but in partnership we had to have these conversations what worked what didn't work what came up for us um, how we were feeling and processing certain things. And that was one of those scaffolding or foundations that we agreed upon before we left. The other thing was um, I wanted and I we agreed to, and I really, this was important to me, I really wanted to say yes to everything mm. because I came from a culture of me having restrictions because I had responsibilities and accountabilities and work and all these yeah. other stuff. And I said no to my son more than I really wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to flip that, that script. And I wanted for us to say yes. And coming from the world of branding, I understood what core values were. And so my son and I defined what our core values were before we left. And instead of following rules, we had this scaffolding or tool to say, okay, is this in alignment with our core values? Then we can say yes. If it's not in alignment, that, you know, we'll say no. And that became our process and our, our roadmap for for you know like intentionally moving through the planet and it felt really really great but it did require a lot of conversation and we were both accountable for that and the last thing was i knew like i like 
you know, I knew intuitively, I knew, I knew that one year of travel, which is what we intended to do, um, absolutely would have been, or, you know, potentially was more educational than fifth grade for my son. (laughs) And I pulled him out of school to take this trip. And I was like, we're not doing fifth grade. We're not doing, we're going to go have this experience. So school's out. Let's make this a trip of wide-eyed wonderment and curiosity guiding us. And let's just go have an adventure. And so we did. So that was kind of our foundation before we left And a couple of things happened. The first thing in the first year was my, not only was my son learning because we both had freedom or liberty to learn whatever we wanted and whatever was in front of us. And our curiosity really guided us. Like, what is that? I don't know. Let's go back to our place and look it up. And how did that get there? And why, why is there a pattern of doorknobs that look like this in Antigua, Guatemala? Like why, Uh. you know? Those those whys really drove um, the things that we learned, and it was crazy and wonderful and beautiful. And so not only did I discover he was learning naturally, but I was learning naturally. And I really embraced the fact that I had become a lifelong learner once again. And we were doing this in partnership, and it was fun, and the learning was deep. And it was sticking with us. I could tell you so many things that we learned, you know, 12 years ago that I still remember, but I couldn't tell you what I learned in, you know, grade school because (laughs) just this passive experience that was demanded upon me. It was an extrinsic motivation to learn a thing in order to pass. This was, we were learning because we were fulfilled. So we were learning. That was one of the first things that we discovered. And then something happened eight months into our travels. And we, um, I told you one of our, our things that, that we agreed upon and we practiced this almost every day was to say yes to everything. Yeah. And eight months into our travels, we were in Antigua, Guatemala. And my son looked at me and he said, mom, can we just, do this forever. <laughs> and guess what? I had to say yes. Wait, 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 wait. So you literally, like, I, I thought you meant that figuratively. Wait, no. so, so you literally, your rule was literally yes to everything. As long as it was in alignment with, with our your values. values. Yeah. Whoa, it's, that's it's radical. Cool. It's yeah, it was a radical. Oh man, that's like like overwhelming almost to me when I'm feeling into it, like how much that would open up your life and like just force you to be just like alive. Like, like how much of what we do is to be safe, secure, and comfortable. I mean, that, that has a space, but safety and security comes within relationships. It doesn't Mm. come place. Right. And we had the safety and security within the relationship. I want to talk about comfort. Comfort to me is one of the best teachers. And, you know, you mentioned that I wrote a book. I just actually, it's funny. I just happened to have it open. This is my book. (laughs) Seen, heard, and understood parenting and partnering with teens. And I'm going to answer the rest of your question in a minute. Yeah, go ahead. 
Well, I, I didn't, didn't actually get to the part where we started world schooling, but I'll get to that in a minute. But I want to yeah. talk about comfort. So we defined these three areas of comfort. There's the comfort zone. Outside of the comfort zone is the stretch zone. And outside of the stretch zone is the panic zone. Within the stretch zone, that is the space where we're uncomfortable. Mm. But that's the place where we're expanding, growing, and learning. And that's the place that magic happens. The panic zone is the space where your amygdala gets activated, you go into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response, and you're you're talking about a survival mechanism. That particular um, function of the brain and of the human experience is meant to keep you safe. It's, it's an experience that happens biologically, and it's meant designed to keep you safe. It's also the oldest part of the brain, and the human species has survived because of this mechanism. Um, a lot of times people get stuck in the panic zone and don't have the tools to understand what's happening. That was never our thing. But going back to the but recognizing what it looks like when you're there and the security of knowing that you're there, you're 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 doing what you need to do for survival or safety. And then you go back. You don't stay there. And that helps us to understand that, okay, we make decisions in that space for survival. But the thing that Western culture doesn't really have is a relationship with the stretch zone. And in Mm. fact, pharmaceutical companies and and advertising, which is the world I came from, by the way, I remember advertising is about a psychological, invoking a psychological response in your viewer or audience to think that there is a lack of something in order to get them back to the space of comfort. And anytime that you experience life outside of the comfort zone in the stretch zone, right? Um the the american public or western western culture wants to medicate you or you know um wants you to zone out or those sorts of things do whatever you need to do to be comfortable but travel takes you outside of your comfort zone and understanding that our relationship to being uncomfortable transformed through travel and thus transformed who we became. Like I remember our first year in Cusco and I remember my first shower. Cusco, first of all, we're living in high altitude, Cusco, Peru, and um, it's freaking cold. It is so fucking cold, but then it's it's also hot. It's hot, then cold. And I remember stepping out of the shower And our house, which was a nice house, had a tin roof. It was drafty. There's no insulation. Um, You know, like the houses are cold. And I remember jumping out of the shower, running to my bed, jumping, diving under the covers, pulling the covers over my head and sobbing. I was so cold. And that kind of and, and the questions of what am I doing? Why did I do this? Why am I here? And then sort of the relaxing into, I'm cold. Why am I spark? You know, like, why are these questions being sparked inside of me? What 
is the thing that I need to look at and face and recognize. And why is cold a bad thing? You know, why, you know, I, I, I was, I was like mm. fighting with myself that there was no heater, that the floors were cold, that, you know, I, why do I need those things? I've got warm clothes, just put them back on, put sweats on and a sweater and a jacket and thick socks and okay. But it was beyond the things that I understood as comfort. And I slowly started to adjust and we ended up using, you know, living in Cusco for three years as our base. I got over that and I understood that. I mean, it's just an analogy for, okay, being cold, there's things you can do, but what is the beauty in the cold? Like I remember Miro and I sitting on the couch bundled up with these socks and blankets and long (laughs) jackets and all this stuff over us. And we were doing like smoke rings with our our breath because it was cold in the house and just giggling and laughing and drinking tea. And just what a fun time we had. We transformed the experience into this beautiful memory that could have only happened outside of our comfort zone. And the thing that we noticed about really creating a relationship with our stretch zone or outside the comfort zone experience is our comfort zone expanded and it now included all of these other things. And became this wonderful transformational experience for us. And I'm just going to answer your original question real fast. And the reason why I had to give you all that background is I told you eight months into our travels, Miro said to me, mom, can we do this forever? And of course I said, yes. And as somebody who researches, I'm, I'm a reader, I'm a researcher. I listen to podcasts. I like for me, finding the topic of something in, that I'm interested in, I dive into it. And you probably noticed that in my book, too. It's written pretty much PhD level, but I don't have a degree in, in psychology. I have a degree in art, you know, just <laughs> actually like it, it, that didn't prepare me for this. But the study that I did prepared me for this. And so I started to research what it looked like to educate my child outside of the system. And that brought up question after question after question, philosophical question, um, fundamental questions like what is education? What is the purpose of education? Why do I want my child to be educated. What does that look like? What do I want for my child? Then I included him in the conversation. <laughs> and and most parents don't do that with their children. Like, you know, what should the purpose of education be? And we came up with some pretty great answers. And that is to really cultivate a love of learning, which meant you can research and learn whatever you want. And we were already doing that. It meant that we both were practicing and exercising our ability to um, integrate experiences into learning experiences into learning and to recognize that learning happens in multi-age groups. 
So like my son didn't need to be in a school with other 10-year-olds. He learned from 50-year-olds as well as four-year-olds. Like the age didn't matter. Everybody had something to offer. So social learning became a massive part of our experience. And I'm answering your question finally. (laughs) Um, And with the development of different stages in our lives, we need different things. And so I discovered that there was something called unschooling. It already existed and we were already doing it and we were doing it in partnership and it was working and we were learning and we were achieving all of our our um, educational goals. I didn't give a shit what curriculum he was following because he wasn't following any curriculum. He was following his interests. And I didn't care that, you know, he was outside of a system which you scope and sequence and testing and evaluation. That proves nothing. It proves that you can take a test and that you learn something that's insignificant or not important to the the experience of that individual because I had gone through that system. And I saw my son explode in his curiosity and his research and his his self-empowerment. And so unschooling was the thing that we started to do. The only thing was I didn't like the word unschooling because it means you're not doing something. Uh. And that's the word that people were using. And so since we were traveling, we called it world schooling. And <laughs> That was the birth of world schooling, and we wanted everybody to be a part of it. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. It took me a while to get there, but I have been up there. That was that was way better than any answer I was looking <laughs> for. <laughs> hey, like I, I uh, as I think I told you this before, like my dream with this podcast is down the road when I can do things more in person, I want to go on like three, four hour benders. I call them just like have these conversations that like just spark and go in wild directions. Cause wow. Everything you talked about was, um, wow. Like a, a, a mentor of mine or someone I, he doesn't know me, but he will be a mentor one day, but I follow this podcast, Paul Paul check. Um, he often talks about these things like, um, like he'll read a a passage of Rumi or, or a philosopher, Carl Jung, and he'll like read a lot. (laughs) He's amazing. I love Carl Jung. And like one thing Paul will say is he's like, you know, I'll just read a passage, put the book down and meditate on it for like an hour. And like, really like every word, like what, like, like, like almost not read it, but like take it into my being through osmosis. Like it's almost like you were actually taking a piece of Carl Jung into yourself. And, and it's like, and so I was listening to all of what you were said, because th- there was a time like you were speaking and I was like, because the, the great thing about your computer is when you speak and you look at me, I don't know if you're doing this on purpose, but it looks like you're looking directly into my eyes. I don't know if you're I actually looking at you. Okay, I, I, so you're looking at me and somehow it also looks like, like so, so when you're speaking, are you looking into my eyes? Or are you looking into the the camera? I'm looking into your eyes. Because it's, it's amazing, is that 
it literally like when I'm when you're speaking to me, looking in my eyes, when I'm looking yeah. at you, it looks like you're directly looking into my eyes. And um, and it put me in a trance like like you, you were talking and it was it was really why I kind of felt a bit psychedelic because I could feel this ebb and this flow where you're speaking. And because I'm looking, there's I think there's some sort of mechanism when human beings look into each other's eyes for a while. It There's this it's like time and space kind of folds in on itself and it, it disappears. And it's like, in some sense, you lose your ability to focus on the specific words of what someone is saying. But I feel like you take in something deeper. Like you, it's almost like when, when I'm looking in your eyes, when we're, when we're connected in that way, it's this wild thing where it's like, you're almost down, like you're sending a direct download into my consciousness rather than using a word that I decode and then put that in my consciousness. It's, it's almost like you think you're not as efficient at taking in information, but possibly it's actually more efficient because you're sending a direct zip code or like a zip file right into their consciousness. Because it was it was wild. Like I was in a, in a in a very deep way. Like I was like feeling everything you were talking about, and it was giving me kind of these visceral emotions like Peru and the cold and like, it was, it was like, you're like, first of all, you're a great storyteller and it's like the way you'll describe feelings and emotions and things. And again, just that's the, that's the elegance of a good storyteller is that you can portray the five senses in a story. Again, like a, a not a good storyteller can't portray the five senses. They can only maybe portray what happened, but they can't portray the feeling, the smell, the 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 the, the word, like everything, right? And so, like you're talking about all this stuff, and I'm just like, it's kind of it, it's a lot to process. You know what I mean? Like again, back to the Paul Check thing. Like you just talked beautifully for like probably ten or fifteen minutes there or something, and it just like I just felt like just this download. And it's like, as a podcaster, it's an interesting position to be in because when some, like someone else listening to this podcast can pause it and just ponder what you've just said. Me, my role is to like take it in and immediately like kind of adjust and assimilate and then put it in a new direction. And it's, it's just this wild thing where like, I'm like taking in everything and I'm thinking about like my children and one day and myself and even when you were talking about, like, I love this thing you, you said about every night doing a check-in. Because yeah. I'm like, that's not even with parenting. That's like every, like, that's life. Like, why don't you ch- take a check-in with your spouse, hey. your partner, yourself? Hey. Like, ask, like, how am I doing tonight? You know what I mean? Like, so much of the time, as I alluded to, like, we're just being shipped from one event to the next. It's like, you know, I finish work and then I go to the gym. And then when I'm after the gym, I come home and I make food and then I watch an episode of TV. Then it's like, like a lot of life is just this constant, just one event after another. And you never really get to, unless you choose to, you never get to slow down and reflect on your experiences. That's why I advise giving up conventional life. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Because conventional life keeps us occupied and it keeps us not present. We got stuff to do and it we get caught up in that. I couldn't find a way to be present in my own life. Oh, wow. in, 
conventional life, but imagine being with another human being 24 seven for like 15 years. Like we traveled together. We were together every single day. We had to have these um, scaffolding again, as I call it, and we had to have this in place in order to make our relationship, our, our connection work. And the two questions that we used, I mean, there were a lot of things that we, you know, brought in and brought out of our, we, we called it a, a, a nightly check-in. And then later when we developed um, our teen retreats, which my son and I founded a company together called Project World School, we brought this process into our teen retreats. Um, but the two questions that we used is what worked today? That's a non-judgment question, right? What worked today? It's an objective way of expressing this worked. What didn't work today? And that, to me, those two questions require a couple of things. Self-inquiry to check in because the, the foundation of the judgment of working or not working comes from within. But again, it's a very non-judgmental question saying, you didn't, you know, not saying you did this. Like, that's not how we phrase it at all like, well, it didn't work when you ignored me, ignored me. It didn't work when, um, you know, I don't know, whatever the thing happened, you know, it's, it's instead of pointing fingers, it's, it's the act of self-inquiry, the act of accountability, the act of emotional intelligence, the act of connection, the act of communication. All of those things are wrapped into those two simple questions. And, you know, you you had said to me before we started talking uh, or recording, uh, my son, Miro, you said he's a great writer. Well, he's a great communicator <laughs> because all of his life we've practiced mm. communicating. That's what I felt about him when I, when I read his uh, passage in your book is um like a very deep level of self-reflection um he's very yeah insightful and I, and I like what he said he's like I love my mom and she's not perfect and it's like neither of us are, like, I, I I I like that like that's a an interesting thing and then I, I like what either he or you said about so much of the time we view our parents as gods yeah. um but yeah you had a relationship and I'm, this is a, another question I have is you know, you've mentioned in this story that you'd go through phases of having a home base and then, you know, I'm extrapolating here, but like kind of then maybe venturing into the wilderness and that could be a city, that could be a town. Like it's just something that's not your home base. And so how do you perceive, um, even currently, like I know you and your son live in the same town in Mexico right now and that's what you're calling home base. So how do you perceive how the rhythms of your life are similar or different when you're in your home base as to when you are in a period of exploration in the wilderness, you could call it? It's a balance. It really is. I mean, we went for many years without a home base. We'd go and oh, stay wow. a month or go somewhere else and stay. But then there were times that we just desired a home base and there was no, there was nothing we had to do. There was no place we had to be. The only times that we were driven by regulations were visa regulations. Uh -huh. We had to leave and come back, um, you know, and 
travelers know about visa runs and things like that. Um, but that was the only thing guiding us or or not guiding us, but creating some sort of tension against what we had to do. Mm. And we like living free and for, you know, and freedom. My last name is Liberty. Like how can <laughs> not yeah. be free? Like that to me is sort of fundamental to who we are. Um, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, there were, there were different, just different seasons for different things. I mean, I loved when we were nomadic. I loved when we had a base. I loved when we gave up our base. I loved when we became nomadic again. And we just worked on a cycle of whatever worked. And there was one time we moved, we decided that we were done with Cusco after three years. We would use it as our base. We'd go off and travel and come back, but really fell deeply in love with the culture, the history, the archaeology, mm. um, the community that we started to cultivate there. We loved it. But then there was a time where, you know, I started saying, okay, we've been living in the mountains for three years as our base. Let's go to the beach. I want to go to the beach <laughs> here. He was like, all right, let's go do it. So we moved to Ecuador. Wow. So that kind of freedom is I mean, everybody should live with that kind of freedom. Hmm. That's, that's beautiful. And, and, and I'm curious, like this, this is a much more philosophical question, but I, I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating like, you know, human nature and us as a species, like it's interesting to think like what a world would look like if everybody was doing what you and Myro did. You know, because like in some sense, like is is one reason the world is structured the way it is because we've been conned into thinking that we all need a home base for the rest of our lives in one place. Because in some sense, is that how cities get formed and how cities get so powerful and all encompassing is that people are like, this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And it's, it's almost like where like it's almost extrapolating like what would a world structure look like what would civilizations look like what would the world look like if the world was more nomadic where human nature was more in tune with that nomadic side where there is phases of life like intuitions where it's like you know for this phase you know it where people kind of felt like i might not be doing this forever this might only be three years five years one year have you ever thought about like how the way we live our lives influences the structures and the power structures and social structures that get formed? A lot. Yeah. Um, Miro and I talk about philosophy and anthropology a lot because we're noticing things um, as not only an outsider, but as somebody who is really eager to learn and to immerse ourselves and really expand our awareness of, of the world and how we fit into it. Um, culture, there, there's parts of culture that is artificially manufactured. And those are the parts that I see as the dungeons that we create for ourselves. Mm. And they're really dungeons of ideas. And if we don't practice challenging those ideas, some people can call them worldviews. Some people can call them, you know, cultural norms. If we don't practice challenging those and, and pushing 
the the boundaries of those things um, we're meant, we're destined to just continue patterns and function within a system. Who do systems um, uh, benefit? Well, those in power. And as somebody who's an anarchist who who rejects power just because they have power, I mean, it doesn't mean I agree or disagree. It means that I get to choose whether or not I agree and disagree. I don't, I'm not advocating breaking laws. I'm, you know, <laughs> unless, well, unless you want to, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not using anarchy as a way of being a criminal. Like to me, that's, that's not the function. The mm. function is, to honor the authority within myself and understand the consequences of making choices for self within a system. And if the system is not in alignment with my values, live outside of that system. And if you can, if you can manage to do that in a way that doesn't hurt another human being, that really helps, um, like elevate your own sense of adventure and self and, and your, your life purpose and so forth. Um, do it. Absolutely do it. But if you feel like, and most people I talk to, most families that I talk to that are interested in world schooling um, are not in alignment with the system of, you know, they call it the hamster wheel. You keep running, you work to, to pay the bills, you pay the bills and, you know, you work more and, you know, that yeah. whole system is not really living. Hmm. And so part of it comes to questioning what do you value? What are the core values that you hold dear? How how important are relationships and connections to you? Um, as somebody who went from making, you know, pretty you know, upper six figures when I owned my business and worked in in um, advertising to living off of a thousand dollars a month for two people. Wow. You know, like like the yeah. the wow. We did that intentionally. We did that because we no longer valued the 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 cycle of consumerism and the and mm. that was something we wanted to shed and we wanted to be closer to the connection of self and humanity and that's what we did and that's what we're still doing money's so not important to me other than having enough to to live the life that I want to live which is clearly not the same kind of life that I lived in LA with my Mercedes and my 2000 square foot loft. I mean, and all my goodies, I, I don't have that, you know, mm. and I went for many, many, many years of only owning what I could carry. And wow. that yeah. really transforms your relationship to stuff, your relationship to consuming your relationship to experiences and it was comfortable. It was comfortable because our comfort zone expanded to include that. And we adjusted and transformed to have mm. that experience. Wow. How, so like, cause you gave up your, your advertising business when you, when you left, um, how did you make money, uh, for those, you know, 13 years nomadically? Like, how did you make money? Easy. The first year we lived off of, of savings. That yeah. that was 
And that helped us have the cush, um, you know, the cushion to sort of transform ourselves and not stress over money. But the second year, I was like, okay, um, I need to to work. <laughs> I could do a little bit of consultation with with advertising. I could do some writing, um, but I really was burnt out. And I, even though uh... I, I was talented doing that, I didn't want to give that to the world. So I hmm. started blogging, and I discovered, you know, in the early. Um, you know, part of our travels, 2009, 2010, we could earn about $1,000 in advertising a month. That was sufficient for us living in Nicaragua or Guatemala or El Salvador, wherever we were living. We could live off of that. I only needed to work, you know, and uh, very little. And um, I got to live very big. (laughs) So, you know, we cooked at home and we took local buses and we described our experiences as living as visiting locals. We weren't a tourist. We were living in local towns and local. I mean, we weren't living in Western um, hotels. We were living in in the local housing and um, we immersed ourselves. We learned and immersed ourselves, and that's how we earned a living. And then in two, 2012, we was it 2012 or yeah, it was 2012. Um, my son was moving into his adolescence and started to desire more social interaction. And at the time, we were based in um, Peru. We had gone as far south down as Bolivia and Peru. And we're like, we love Cusco. Let's stay here for a bit. Let's just, I love it, love it, love it. It was was so exciting to us. We love the Andean culture, the mysticism, the archaeology, the history. We were learning so much. We were going to like Machu Picchu and Sexy Woman and all of these uh, wonderful like archaeological sites. And um, like you, your your Bruce Lipton, you know, desire. Well, I started like meeting uh, and and reaching out to these um, uh, researchers. So I met people like Brian Forrester and, and he was on Ancient Aliens and doing a ton <laughs> of work around um, some of the, the theories in Peru. And we became his assistant because I asked really? him. Really? Wow, that's cool. So it was just a matter of like, like, who cares if the world says no, I'm going to ask because the worst that can happen is no. And so we ended up working with him with the elongated skulls. And I, I suggested that we photograph all of these elongated skulls he was working with. And so I took my green fuzzy travel towel and pinned it as a backdrop. And I made a, like a lazy Susan from materials I bought at one of the um, hardware stores and I brought my camera and we put it on a tripod and we photographed these elongated 15 yeah. of them. Are you talking about the uh, Anna, Anna Mitchell Hedges crystal skulls like in Indiana Jones? 
Not the, no, not those, but the elongated skulls, the ones that. Oh, like the literal, they're not crystal, they're literal real skulls. Yeah, so we got to pick them up, put uh, them on a So wait, my son and I were. Wait, uh, sorry, sorry w- w- one second. Wait, how big did you say they were? So the elongation was. Whoa, those are yeah, huge. I have pictures. I have pictures. All the pictures that we took. Oh man! Sorry, so keep this, keep going. Wow. Yeah. So this was in Paracas, Peru. And we got to. So we did this thing for him. So we photographed all of them. We got to take him out of the case of the museum and put him on the tripod, and then we delivered these <laughs> high-res photos for him. But we got to learn about how to identify the trepidation, the the you know the ancient. Um, holes in the skulls and we got to learn how to identify those that were um uh deformed through the boards and we got to see the difference between those that were born that way and then we got to see the hybrids and then we we got deeper into some of these theories and we had these skulls in our hand we got to see the baby skulls with the eyes that came up like this we got to learn uh the different nerve endings and how they were different in the hybrids versus the human deformed skulls we got to see all of it just because we were interested and and we got to study with this particular researcher and we met many researchers because we were just there and we asked can we tag along or (laughs) or could you share with us your stuff we met one of the um, father and son he was probably in his 80s and and the son was in his mid 50s maybe early 60s and they were peruvian um researchers that talked about the land of the giants that wrote books about the aliens and all this crazy stuff and we also studied the the academic archaeology and saw where things sort Diverged. of changed. And that gave us a really rich understanding of the builders of Machu Picchu and the ancient builders and all the different ages. Um, we also learned that Peru was one of the only countries that had an official um uh department of ufos uh, really? department. yeah <sighs> and and then we learned to start asking questions to locals what what were their family traditions about ufos we heard stories of ufos going in and out of one of the big lakes in uh, the sacred valley in this town called chinchiro and the stories of just families telling, you know, legends. And that got Miro really interested in um, uh, like origin stories around Uh. the world. I am really fascinated with myth. And he became an avid um, uh, like um, scholar. His knowledge is that of a PhD in this area, an avid scholar of Greek myth, Roman myth, um, and some of the other myths around the world. So we did comparative myth, uh, religion, and all of this stuff just because nobody ever said this is beyond (laughs) you. 
scope of understanding. Uh, you know, nobody ever said that to him. Nobody said that you're too young to go there. And I remember several years ago, we were in uh, Greece, we were in Athens, and we were talking to the docent about all the sculptures. And I'm jumping around countries. I mean, we've been around the world. Yeah. But I remember talking to the docent, and she was blown away that this young teen knew more or at least as much as she did. And she had a PhD and a doctorate, one or, one or the other in history and ancient history. And he was there, there was nothing he didn't know uh, in this conversation. And it was just really fascinating. And I was so proud. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, uh, two, two questions that jump up to me. Uh, one is, was your primary method of transportation always um, like busing and that kind of thing? Yeah. Until we decided that we needed to go somewhere else. <laughs> and, and then so, it was a car? Uh, no, then it was an airplane. Oh, like we, that, that, that's what I mean. So it was like you you were more into either obviously an airplane, like. but when you were in a continent, you would pretty much always use the local transpo- transportation, yep. busing. So you'd yep. never really like have your own car or anything. Interesting. No, we didn't have to own a car. Um, actually, as somebody who came from L.A., I actually hated driving (laughs) years of rush hour but we didn't need it it was an expense that we didn't need and it was it was much more freeing not having a car and just going to place and saying okay we're now in this small beach town on the coast of uh, who knows where nicaragua or you know what, let's go to the mountains. Let's research. Let's see what's around. Where do we want to go? And that always gave us the freedom to make big decisions or little decisions. And we did it together. We unpacked the information we had. We looked at our budget. We looked at how much money we had. We looked at what we desired, what the experience we desired to have. And we just did it. But there were times that we jumped from, you know, uh, Latin America to Europe or to Africa or to Asia. Like we did that too. Yeah. But our every time we go to Asia or somewhere else in the world, we couldn't wait to get back to Latin America. It just really feels like home for us. Wow. And it always did. So for but you, did you, did you guys ever have a home base in Europe or Africa or was it always the home base was always in Latin America? always in Latin America. Interesting. We, we stayed in, uh, we stayed in Greece for about five months, um, but in different parts. Um, we were in South Africa. It's the only, I wish I could say we had more travel experiences in Africa. We only went to one country and I still haven't been to Egypt. I was just going to say that. I was like, have you been to Egypt? Wow. Yeah, But there's still time. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Wow. When I have uh, Robert Edward Grant on the podcast, I'm going to introduce you guys. Do you know him, Robert Edward Grant? No, no. Oh, he's... He's like my newest obsession. He he makes me emotional. I don't know why. Like sometimes I'll hear him speak. I'll just start crying. Like it's it's he he gives me a visceral emotional reaction whenever he talks. Um, I get this. I, I get this feeling like I don't know if it's past lives or not, but like 
I almost got this like father. Like I, I don't usually people don't ever register really as father figures for me. Um, almost nobody, but for whatever reason, he, I don't know if it's a connection he and I have, and it'll be interesting to see when I do meet him one day, what ends up happening. If we end up having a friendship, if we don't, it'll be very fascinating because when I hear him speak, if like, I remember the first time I ever came across him, I started crying because I felt like I had found somebody I've been looking for my entire life, but not know, not knowing who I was looking for. It was like, it was like, it was like my, I never had a dad and I found my dad. It was, it was just this really wild thing and he's just so kind and like he has a massive heart, which is why I love him, but he is brilliant. <laughs> like my God, he, uh, so he literally is cracking like codes, like encryptions from Leonardo da Vinci and all these people like on a weekly basis. Like he will literally just, he's always just cracking codes and stuff. And like, he'll be doing geometry and he'll be like just making the Vitruvian man and squaring the circle. And like, he's always just like he, on his Instagram, you can just look, he's just constantly doodling. I will. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. But him, his biggest fascination is, is Egypt. And he, he's cracking the pyramids all the time. And he's like, like right up to date. I think he might be one of the world's, uh foremost experts in egypt right now and he has like a show on gaia called codex um he's just like it, it was wild it's, i never knew he existed up until like two months ago it's, it's yeah, i don't know him I, thing. i'm gonna have to get that information yeah. from you I'll uh, yeah and i, um, I just go on go on you know, I like I've I've followed Graham hancock for years i read his book when i was a teen like wow. That that kind of stuff really lights me up. So yeah, absolutely, I'm interested. How cool! Yeah. Oh man, I, I'm so excited to meet him one day. Um, and and one quick question about Myro. Um, actually, before we get to Myro here in a second, um, because like I know I know you, me and you, we both have a fascination and a, a love for like the the card game Magic: The Gathering. So I know that you you have these things that you probably carry around so when you're going i i guess like do you how much stuff do you have in your home base because i know you said a lot of the time you don't take anything more than you can carry in a backpack so in your home base what is your perception and your way that you i don't want to call it hoard but what do you view as important enough to take up space in your life yeah, well, when we have bases, um, I don't mind spending money making my space comfortable. And then we just get rid of it because we've spent it already. And then we just get rid of it. Like wow. the the attachment to stuff is like that, that relationship has transformed. I don't need to hold on to things. I don't have the fear that because I spent the money on this thing, I have to retain the value and I can't give it away. No, it's just as valuable as I give it away. Why do I need to possess it? So like we bought when we lived in Peru, I wanted a washing machine. I didn't like washing, you know, my clothes on the, the um, sink outside in the washboard like everybody did i did that for a while and i wanted a washing machine i didn't want to do that anymore so i bought a washing machine it made my life a little bit easier and i bought you know decorations for the house then we got rid of it when we left it's just that simple but um you know there are some books that we travel with but we mm. really try to 
keep things minimally. But um, when we started our company, Project World School, uh, we finally had the justification of having a game bag. <laughs> and both my son and I are huge board game people. And so now we had a reason. So we had, you know, Cards Against Humanity and all the stuff that we could play with the teens on our teen trips. But we also had games with us. Mm. So we had quite a few games uh, with us. But before, when we were just backpacks, like our most valuable game was cards. I can't even tell you how many games of cards Miro and I played. And he's he's a really good chess player. I can't play him anymore. He's like way too strategic and really aggressive. And I'm like, oh, I just want to have fun. He's like, mom, that's not the point of playing. The point of playing is to win. And he became a really strategic player. So, um, you know, like things like chess and backgammon and we have our rummy tiles and we have stuff. Um, uh, yeah. But then when we started doing our teen trips, like we got more games like werewolf and role-playing <laughs> games and magic, the gathering and, you know, stuff like that. So casual games mm. and, as well as strategic games. And when you said, uh, at the beginning, all you had, it was cards. Do you mean like a 52, yeah. like a no, just no, cause yeah, there's like an infinite amount of cards, uh, games you oh can play God. with that game. Totally. Wow. And dice. Dice are good too. They're they're cards and dice. You can carry those around with you everywhere. What so what are some games that you can play with cards and like do you combine the cards and the dice or are they two different things? Two different things. Two and different things. How how do you play a game? What's like what's a fun game to play with just dice? Um Oh, I can't remember the game was played, but we learned it in somewhere in Latin America. And it's a well, there's you could play Farkle with it. You could play Yahtzee. But this game that we played was kind of like a not a betting game. I wish I remember what it's called, but it was all in Spanish. It's wow. so much. And we played it for years. We haven't played it in ages, but it just required five dice. Now wow. my son, uh, he loves like D&D and he's yeah. got all <laughs> different dices. But um, yeah, that's different. Mm. And, and I know you had mentioned to me prior um, that Myro is a game developer, a, a board game developer. What is because, you know, obviously he's a very clever, intelligent human being with a lot of, you know, fantastic social skills. I'm curious. Um, and, and he's 23. He's 23. He'll be 24 early next year. So he's 23. Um, and, and I don't expect him to have an answer to this, um, or even you, but do you, does, do you guys ever talk about, does he have a vision for his life or a kind of, what does he see himself contributing to the world in any way, if anything yet? He's busy following his passions. He really is. And I think that's what we give to the world. We give mm. our passions, um, and and that really is our purpose, right? To to resonate in ourself fully. Um, what has he done for work? Um, well, we co-founded this company together, and he's been co-leading with me these trips for teens. They're educational, immersive learning trips through Project World School. And we've done more than 30 of them with hundreds of teenagers. 
Mm. in places like Thailand, Japan, South Africa, uh, Wales, all over Latin America. Um, so we've done trips, these these uh, temporary learning communities. Some of them are a month long, some are only 10 days. So he's learned how to facilitate, problem solve, um, lead, uh, create and hold space for people, listen, yeah, lots of different things, organize, you know, the, the, you know, the actual nuts and bolts of a trip and paperwork and payments and insurance, all that he's learned all that because again, we're partners. So we do it all together. Um, and he's actually starting next year. Uh, we've been hosting the trips together starting next year. He's going to lead his first, first trip by himself wow. and he will, start doing the longer trips just by himself with a team of of co-facilitators um but i'm going to step back from that i you know it's time we created the company together 10 years ago and we created it primarily so my son would have social community and you know be around like-minded teams that was really important to him um, a lot of them are self-directed or unschooled or homeschooled, and that really resonated. So we had a community of people that he met. But now that he's older, he's facilitating this community who are our target audience is who we do produce the trips for. Um, and I, I lived, you know, five, six months out of every year with, you know, communities of teenagers. And, you know, I'm, I'm. Uh, upper fifties now. I'm, I, I'm, you know, stepping into my life after that, and mm. it's taking that over. I'm still co-facilitating with him um, the the intro trips, the shorter ones, the ten day trips. Mm. But um, yeah, our, his first trip, he's going to lead solo, uh, but with a co-facilitator. Um, that has worked with us many times before. Um, we'll be in Thailand, a three-week trip, and they we do cultural immersion. We um, we do cooking classes, massage classes, mm-hmm. a, a week working with the elephants. We do rock climbing, um, all sorts of immersive, you know, uh, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like, experiences. Yeah, a lot of fun. So he's really good at that. Um, but he's so, you know, he owns a business, he co-owns a business <laughs> with me. So he's doing that, uh, over the pandemic. Um, he got a job working because obviously we, we weren't leading trips, but he, um, was teaching self-directed young people at a micro academy online. And so he did that for two and a half years. And in fact, I think tomorrow is his last day. He gave his notice. Now the travel's starting again, and we're going to start doing the trips again. And he did that, made great money, you know, for, for two and a half years. And he didn't go to school, but he's a great facilitator and a great orator and a great creative person and a great researcher and loves learning and can facilitate and hold space for young people that are doing that. So we did that. And he's also two and a half years into designing a um, a brand new engine for a tabletop D&D-like game, but it's based on 
myth and it's oh, very wow. it's it's really um it's based on accurate myth unlike what's his name reardon who wrote oh, all those rick riordan yeah. who just like <laughs> totally slaughtered the myth he couldn't read those because he's like ah that's not the real myth you yeah. know <laughs> so it's wow. really accurate um that's that's very cool and and for you um you said that you're embarking on a next uh yeah like a year journey what do you see yourself doing next well, I love um, Mexico. I love the city that we live in. I love this as a base. I actually, um, for the first time in many, many, many years, I now have dogs. <laughs> so and I have a garden and I have a boyfriend. And so like, you know, my life has changed. Uh, it's It's a new season of my life. I wrote this book mm. um i'm working with teens that that is really my passion and purpose and it lights me up and i know that's why i'm on this planet and i know that everything that i did in my life led me to this point and um the teens that i work with just fulfill me and i just i think it's a beautiful engagement i know how to partner with teens i know how to how to teach um, tools for mental health, and I know how to hold space and connect and make sure that they feel seen, heard, and understood. And that's the one thing I wish I had when I was a teen. <laughs> that was beautiful. Well, this is a great place to uh, to end this. And now for uh, shameless plug time. So if if you can, uh, yeah, if you can share with us, um, yeah, what you're working on, where we can find you, all of that sure. stuff. Sure. So the work that I do with teens can be found at Transformative Mentoring for Teens. Um, also check out projectworldschool.com. Um, and then I am just about ready to produce my 10th world schooling conference for families here in Mexico. And that's taking place in March of 2023. And you can find out information on how to come and be a part of a five-day conference with families at a water park here in Mexico in March at World's, uh, World School, wait, WorldSchoolFamilySummit.com. Um, yeah, so that's what I do. I also produce mental health um uh, trips for teens. I've got one coming up in May based on the hero's journey. Mm. And I will be um, facilitating a group of teens to discover their own inner hero. And we'll be designing the journey and the monsters and the dragons and all that stuff. <laughs> um, it's writing, art, improv, uh, mask making and storytelling. Wow. All, all, all together. Wow. Well, thank you for a beautiful conversation. This was, um, this is fascinating. You know, it, it gives me a lot to ponder in my own life and yeah, perhaps, uh, ignites a fire in me to start traveling again. Cause, and, and, and finding a way to maintain my current, not my lifestyle, but my current, um, responsibilities in the world. I feel like, you know, my podcast, like, cause, and sometimes I know like this is part of who I am. Like uh, my podcast is definitely, I feel my value to the world and I feel it's only going to grow. And I, I, I have always had a question of 
how will I do this in a new, in a new way? Cause I know I, I don't want to do it the way I've been doing now, like in Canada, kind of having a very, you know, the life I live, like I, I kind of, what you're saying inspires me a lot and it's like, okay, you know, maybe there's a way to do my podcast and also live a more exciting uh, free life. So thank you for inspiring that in me. And thank you for coming on, Lainey. My pleasure. It's, I can't wait to watch you grow and explode <laughs> and and step into your power, your full power. I mean, you're stepping into it, but just being there. I see it in you. It's, it's amazing. I'm excited to be a part of this. Thank you for the invitation. Aww. Thank you. And take care, everybody. Love you. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the show today, everybody. If you enjoyed it and you want to show your support, be sure to click the subscribe button and share this podcast with someone you feel will enjoy it. And before we go, I want to take another moment to thank our sponsors, Listening to Smile and Indigo Sun. And if you're interested in anything I mentioned regarding either of them, be sure to visit their websites, which are linked in the description of this podcast. And that's it. So I'll see you all in the next episode. I love you. Bye.